Hi, my name's Rob Pine. I am the champion of the underdog. Thank you for coming to my new podcast, which you will hear regularly. I'll be talking to my friends, Anthony Mick, and anyone else who listens about all this shit that is going down. So today I'm talking with my good friend, Mick. How are you going today, Mick? Yeah, I'm good, Rob. What, what we're talking about today is I was just, I was just thinking, having been in, in politics, how, how we don't often talk about Marx in day-to-day politics and how young people today don't reference Marx or, or think about him as much as we did when we were younger. And um, I think that's a real problem, obviously, um, in terms of socialism uh, becoming mainstream. And surely if we did reference Marx just when we're assessing any political issue or, or talking about a whole range of things, if we're asking questions, surely Marx will give us a more scientific answer and, and fully inform any discussion we are having. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, you, you're exactly right when you use that word scientific, but it gets ignored. Like, nobody mentions Marx because Marx critiqued uh, capitalism. So when you live in a, a capitalist culture, that's why we never hear about Marx. And that feeds through to why young people you mentioned don't talk about him, I suppose. What what you say is true. Yet when I was studying the humanities back in the the very early nineties, um, there were no end of sort of neo-Marxist analysis by sociologists of, of various issues, and um, I, I wonder why we don't hear as much of that this days these days. And I'm wondering if, if it's because of the cuts in funding to the humanities and the social sciences. Yeah, that could be part of it, but it is depressing because. They were sort of hotbeds of sort of intellectualism, weren't they, once? University campuses, but now people just go along there to study and get a degree and hopefully they'll get a job out of it as well. But once upon a time, it was just a place of learning. and Things like um, sociology, history, English literature, all those things, they might not necessarily lead to a job, but they certainly made people think and when you, when you look at the people getting elected elected today, whether it's sort of Boris Johnson or Donald Trump, there's a clear lack of thought, <laughs> a lack of any capacity to rationally assess policy. You know, that's it's evident. That's um, right. And and surely, uh, um, if people were to reference Marx and his teachings more often, you'd have to get a more thoughtful outcome. Surely. Yeah. Well, people could read him for a start. Now, Marx emerged. My understanding is. As a young man, he read the um, the works of Hegel. I don't understand a lot about the teaching of Hegel, but um, he originated that idea of dialectic reasoning. Is that correct? I think so. I, Hegel's very difficult to read, but it's that sort of dry reasoning. But Marx mentioned it quite a bit, didn't he? Marx used it to um, describe what we can do, how we can move on from capitalism, I suppose. Just how is, what is dialectical reasoning? Like people probably wouldn't have a clue what that means these days anyway. Well, my understanding is it's alternate, alternate arguments competing to explain a given problem and reaching a conclusion. Is that, is that correct or...? Yeah, that's the first step in the process. That's pretty right. But then what's the next step? 
then when you reach a conclusion or a common a compromise way of thinking, everybody goes a, a, along in agreement, <clears throat> then there comes a time when people see another view. So then you've got two opposing views again, so then you, um, you know, come to another sort of compromise. Compromise is not a good word, but... So you reach it. You reach uh, an, an increasingly, um, it's it sort of a, like hypothesis becomes a fact. It you get a better hypothesis, a higher standard yeah. of reasoning as you as you progress, as yeah. everything goes into the mix, and, and then yeah. you resolve differences. You never sort of reach an end because things, circumstances, everything is always changing, and so you you need to have that that mode of uh, I don't know what, what you call it thinking. Uh, so, like Marx never predicted um, what a socialist, uh, what, what would you say, society would look like because every place uh, where people are, they've got existing different ways of living and different cultures and stuff like that. So, they adapt socialism in different ways. So, there was no, and, and that's where. I guess that dialectical reasoning comes in and they, they work out which is the best way to have socialism, you know, for them. We're, we're, we're working backwards um, with Marx to when he was sort of exiled and ended up in England living in London. Um, looking at the sort of Dickensian industrial society he was living in, it seems so stark now that you have the owners of production and the working class. It's hard to imagine that he started speaking in those terms that what was happening was not already evident. You know what I mean? When, when, he came, when he came forth with his reasoning, it must have been groundbreaking at the time. Um, to a degree. There's other writers which had similar sort of thoughts to Marx. So, like socialism been around before Marx. But Marx sort of just went over it with um, his reasoning. Um, that sort of dry sort of phenomenological sort of reasoning which Hegel was into and tried to turn it into a science like everybody like you and me think that socialism is a good way for people to live together but um, there's other people who might disagree so he tried to turn it into a science so you could sort of like <clears throat> independent of you know, people's opinions. Well go going back before Marx you had people like John Locke and your sort of liberal theorists who we're all about the rights of the individual. And it's fine to be on about the rights of the individual when you're talking about being a member of the moneyed middle class. But, but once you start um, looking at the majority of people who have nothing, um, you don't have a lot of anything as an individual. It's through that class solidarity and that class conflict that, 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 that you see the prism through which you see the world, I guess. That's right. Uh, but still, that um, like lock and um, talking about the individual for the first time, individual rights, that was a pretty important breakthrough. Some people say that's the most revolutionary thing that's happened um, to the human race. What happened, when was it, in the 16th century or thereabouts? It, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I call myself a socialist and, and sometimes I'll sort of um, speak uh, negatively about liberals. Yet some of those liberal ideals... The one that I find particularly appealing is that idea that you should be able to live your own life however you want up until that point where your behaviour impacts your neighbour adversely. And, and, and I, I quite like that, but um, I think 
the problem is um, when you're talking about individual rights, um, a lot, most of the individuals in society don't have a lot of control, if that makes sense. That's true. They've, they might have their own individual rights and they can, but it's only to a limited well, degree. Is that well, what we're, we're, we're talking property rights, aren't we, essentially? Yeah. That, that's where a lot of this originated. And if you're property, sure, yeah. if you're property less, um, that's right. It, it, it's pretty. I think it's through marks that you find some way forward, not just for yourself, but for society as a whole. Yeah, well, I suppose Marx thought eventually, when we go from capitalism to socialism, and then the nirvana, which is communism, property would wouldn't exist really anymore. What was the saying? Um, share to each according to their needs from, from each according to their ability and to right. each according to their needs which um is the way of summing up the communism in, in a whatever sentence and that's distinct from maybe socialism where it's like uh, from each according to their abilities but to each according to their labours or something like that. So that's a more individualistic approach. So if you work and earn money, you get to keep it yourself and no matter how much you got. Whereas when you get to a place like communism where property hopefully would then be meaningless, um, you can work as much as you like, but it doesn't mean you're going to become, you know, 10 times richer than the next person because what wealth you create, the extra that you don't need, somehow feed into the other members of the community. That process of work itself um, is interesting and I reference Marx, uh, Marx's writing about alienation, alienation from the, from the industrial process. So you're looking at pre-industrial society where, where people had various roles in a community, uh, whether you were a butcher, whether you were a carpenter, indeed people sometimes had surnames, butcher, carpenter, as, you know, associated with their labour. And uh, of course, once you move into a factory environment um, where you're just a, a step along the, the conveyor belt, um, you lose your identity and you, you become alienated from what you're producing. That's true. Alienation is very important, and Marx yeah, talked about that a lot. But by the same token, the economies that can uh, just the, the value you get out of labour. Um, in factories um, far exceeds the uh, labour that individual sort of like um, entrepreneurs or businesses uh, can, can achieve. So there are actually benefits in large scale sort of labour sort of operations. But yeah, yeah. That, 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 that does produce a lot more economic output, a lot more wealth. And I guess that's, that's then when you start talking about uh, Marx's analysis of that process in terms of who owns the means of production because you've got the inputs through the labour of all the people working in the enterprise and then you've got the profits. And if I'm not wrong, um, Marx's analysis is when something's produced, it's cost this much to produce and it's sold for a higher amount. And that, that difference between the cost of production and what it's sold for is the profit that um, that goes to the ruling class um, merely by virtue of the fact they own the means of production, not having worked for that 
or contributed their own labour. That's right. That's the whole basis of capitalism, really, when you look at it. It's, it's like um, based on greed, in a way. People living off the, the, the labour of others, not paying them the correct amount, and the surplus labour effectively going to them as profit. And then they'll invest that into another uh, enterprise and so on it goes until we end up with this endless sort of growth that we've got in you know, this stage of capitalism we're in now where we just have to keep growing and growing and growing to feed the capitalist machine. I'm not sure if... Uh, well, obviously, through the rights of Marx, Marx, identi- writings, Marx identified something um, incredibly powerful which is workers acting collectively in solidarity. And I'm not sure who wrote it, but um, I remember it said once that there's nothing as powerful as workers with their hands in their pockets doing nothing. Because if you've got every worker in an enterprise uh, with their hands in their pockets doing nothing, everything grounds to a halt. Yeah. And that, 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 brings the, uh, that brings the boss to the table pretty quick. It does. And there's, like there is these days, this laws against... You know, workers going on strike, so we haven't got the same rights as um, those the individual. So we can't, as a union, we can't choose to put our hands in our pockets without you know sanctions, huge fines. Well, I guess that's why we're involved in politics to try and change that, to try and change that to have fair laws, so um, workers can be represented uh, industrially through a trade union. Well, that's a start. That's one more reason why the union movement is is uh, not the size that it was, you know, decades ago, because they've progressively introduced those laws, which makes it more difficult for unions. Doesn't um, doesn't give them the same power to represent their workers as they had once before. Well, in terms of failures, I talked about not referencing Marx in mainstream political discussion. Younger people not referencing Marx academic institutions not not teaching as widely. And um, I would go uh, very far to say that it is actually trade unions who have let us down by not referencing Marx enough and by going away um, from that socialist, that socialist um, core position and that in leaving that, that, that's been part of the problem and why governments have in turn, particularly Labor governments, um, been able to pa- pass laws uh, that take rights away from workers and away from unions. That's true. That's been the case um, for unions in Australia for, for many years. And that could even date back between the wars, the First and Second World Wars, I think, um, when uh, governments, Western governments around the world, were scared that um, you know so, there might be a socialist revolution, so they effectively... Um, allow the unions to get better working condition and wages for their workers, but um, at a cost that they couldn't um, progress to the, the, the Marxist sort of stage where the workers actually take over the means of um, production and effectively overturn the capitalist system. So that broad sort of uh, outlook of unions, which I agree we, we've lost and we should get back, um, yeah, that, that 
that disappeared and I think it was around about the time of, uh, like I said, after the, the um, October Revolution in, in Russia when governments around the world were scared, that, uh, like capitalist governments were scared that, you know, this could happen to them. Yeah. Yeah, and actually one of my heroes, Frank, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, just prior to the, the, the Second World War, um, we all champion FDR and the great reforms, the New Deal and everything he did, but I think it's worth um, acknowledging FDR was a member of the ruling class and at least part of his reform agenda was out of a fear um, that by keeping people down um, that a revolution could happen of, of that order. Yeah. So um, some progressive reforms too have come out of, yeah. out of trying to address that, if you like, taking the kettle off the boils. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or you could also say it's like uh, the workers or the, the, the trade unions accepted, um, settled for reform rather than revolution. Yeah, yeah. But, um, well, you know, I think you've always got to get what's, what's on offer. Like in the United States now, if you live in a, in a, in a seat that could go to Biden or, or Trump or a state that could fall to Biden or Trump, uh, I think there's a bit of a duty on you to vote for Biden, even though he's a corporate Democrat and doesn't really champion, you know, he certainly doesn't champion a socialist agenda in any way. Uh, but I think you've got the first goal's always got to be to defeat fascism, hasn't it? Yeah, well, that's right. You take one step at a time. So, yeah, getting rid of Trump is um, better than, um, yeah, you can't sort of go from, from Trump one minute to, you know, socialist revolution the next. You, maybe you have to do it in steps, hopefully... Uh, I should add that that's a reflection of the American first past the post system too. So, you know, if you live in a seat that's safely Democrat or safely Republican, you may feel your vote doesn't make a difference. Then you've got that freedom to vote green. Whereas here in Australia, we have a um, preferential system of voting. So you can essentially vote green or socialist with your first preference, then pass that on to our equivalent, our equivalent of the Democrats, which is the Labor Party, always making sure you put the Conservatives last. Yeah. Yeah, so our voting system is better than uh, what, what happens in the United States. I think you can more fully express your political values through our voting system. Yeah, plus the, they don't, we don't have this voter suppression like they have, we have in the United States, effectively trying to stop people from voting, because this isn't the case of the Republican Party, of course, because um, the poor people are the ones who are likely to vote against them. You know, looking back uh, at, at the work of Marx and reinterpreting that and, and seeing where we are today, it's easy to become uh, very negative and I do get really depressed sometimes when I look at um, the state of the country and the world. Um, and I was listening to an American socialist the other day and he said, well, you know, look at everything through the fullness of time. Look at everything through the, um, with, with a view to, to history over over." over so long, capitalism is a very brief experiment and it's an experiment that will come to pass. You know, if you look at it, we've only had capitalism for a few hundred years. It's not an incredibly long time uh, for, for, for in terms of being socially organised around a system and um, there's every reason to believe that socialism as, uh, that capitalism as it, as it exists today um, won't be come to pass, you know what I mean? That's right. And you're talking about industrial capitalism. I think capitalism has been around for 
bit longer than 400 years, but but even so, I don't think we should be complacent. Like um, Marx said the same sort of thing, but him and Engels were always trying to stir up the um, the workers um, through their, their international. And, well, I think I think that gives you the hope, the hope to and the call to action. You know what I mean? If you can see the possibility of a better world, of a better life, it's not just going to happen. People still have to, you know, change their way of looking at the world for one thing if they just spend all their time on Facebook and believe everything they see then they won't even know what they're up against. Well well, that, those those comments you just made there bring me to the, the sort of neo-Marxist scholar Antonio Gramsci because he wrote very much about, um, about the way in which the cultural institutions ownership of the media as well uh, the church and all of these other factors not to do with ownership of the means of productions, how that stops revolution and indoctrinates the people. And um, and what that awareness that doesn't exist that you're talking about is, is I see, largely a result of the ruling class being in control of the means of uh, the, the, the media, the mainstream media, and also the social media. Like, you can't tell me Google and Facebook aren't sort of promoting certain ideas and philosophies and sites at the expense of others. Well, the main thing they um, base their, their um, business model on is that's it, business making as much money as possible so that um, they might have started off as socialist in Silicon Valley and had all these grand ideas but now they're just you know mega monopoly capitalists you can't rely on them to um, yeah, help you out if you want to um, start people thinking about the, uh, the revolution from capitalism to socialism. In a way, it's even more intimidating to think so much power uh, in, the, in the hands of so few of the ruling class. Yeah, it's got to a ridiculous extent. Once upon a time, America used to stop corporations from getting so big. I don't know what happened there, but it's ridiculous from, from how big they are those um, social media or software companies, whatever they're called. It's interesting that there's a line on the left, and, and I've, we've both talked about um, hoping Biden wins instead of Trump. Well, there, there is a line of reasoning on the left that if Trump wins, it'll be a good thing because it will lead to revolution because violence will be the, the outcome and the working... I, it's, not, it's not a line I espouse or agree with, but, but it certainly says that uh, if Trump's re-elected... Uh, the the lines and the polarization will be that stark, but uh, I I I um I see that as like I don't think it's very nice to see people shooting each other in the street. No, well it doesn't necessarily have to be violent, but if yeah I see your reasoning. Like I've thought that myself. If if Trump wins, well things are going to get so bad people are going to start going back to Marx and starting to read Marx and trying work this out, you know, all over again, you know. So capitalism wants no fuss. Capitalism wants to get about, make as much money as the owners of the means of production can make, as much money as the ruling class can make, and keeping workers pushed down as low as possible with as least fuss as possible. And and I think that is why some of the big money, some of the big corporate money is now going to Biden. Because people think, well, if we, a bit like I said about FDR, some of the ruling class say, well, let's put Joe in, 
we might get a small cut in profit or whatever, but at least things will settle down and we can get about business as usual. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, like, and which would be better than um, what someone offer through Trump now, but um, but yeah, getting back to your point, it might not necessarily uh, make us any close closer to the socialist revolution. It'll be like what the unions did in Australia, you know, between the the world wars, um, choosing reef reform over uh, yeah. revolution. Well, I think you can you can want revolution and believe in, in it, but still grab what's on offer. Like I think you know, if you can get um, healthcare for uh, twenty million more citizens, you grab it. You know what I mean? And yeah. it doesn't make you less an activist. It doesn't stop you doing your other yeah. your other activism. And in this country with preferential voting, you can still vote for a socialist and yeah. pass that on. So um, I don't see any contradiction there. Certainly, uh, I tell no. you what I tell you what I do see though, and that is um, a threat to capitalism in terms of um, crisis becoming the norm. I saw a meme on um, one of those social media channels and it said, if capitalism's so great, why does it need to be rescued every seven years? Yes. Yeah, no, I've thought about that. There's something called disaster socialism, isn't there? Like, you and me have seen it when there's a cyclone and everything <coughs> shuts down around where we live for a while. All of a sudden, you know, you start talking to your neighbours and, you know, if something, tree blows down in uh, your next-door neighbour's yard, you know, you're out there trying to organise some help and things like that. Yeah, in bushfires, you see the whole community come together on a yeah. level, do so you? so you do get, you know, some instances where people are working together, like, and they don't care, you know, if they're doing labour and not getting, you know, paid as much money as they're getting before. It's like they're all helping each other out, which I think is the natural way for human beings myself like we haven't got this far without being by by being um, antagonizing to each other i think humans have reached the point of the industrial revolution because we work together you know and and we created things together um, the opposite of thatcherism the opposite of thatcherism yeah well she took Locke's ideas and turned them on, on, on on their heads saying that um, there is no such thing as a community. We're all individuals. Oh, that's right. Is that what she said? Yeah, no such thing as... Uh, yeah, that's just ridiculous, isn't it? Like, uh, how can you say we're all just individuals? Like, um, you know, if you get sick and you go to a hospital, okay, you're an individual, you know. Hey, is a doctor going to... You know, you've got all that technology at the hospital and the staff and, and they're going to... Um, help you get better and stop it from dying. Well, and so that's not because of us being, you know, super individual. Yes. Yeah, they got, but I hear that argument put all the time. Oh, people that look after themselves don't need health services. You know what I mean? Well, well that's... other arguments as well. Yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. Like a lot of these... Like, that's taking survival of fitness fit, fit a bit too far, isn't it? <laughs> I know. You'll always get people... But it's, it, it's the Tory, it's a Tory, uh, Tory line of divide and conquer. And if everyone's individualised, it's pretty easy to keep them down. It's when they're collective and together that they become a real force. That's right. That's right. Yeah, divide you fall. Mm. Okay, comrade, I'm feeling a bit talked out. I, um, I don't know if any of this makes sense to the listener. We'll have to structure these yarns a bit, a bit better next time. But uh, 
It's yeah. been good talking to you. Okay, comrade. Yeah. And um, and I'll see you at the next episode. Okay. Thanks, mate. Twenty-eight minutes. Fuck. <laughs>